Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Overtax Talk Show with your host, Carla Dennis, bringing you the truth. Hello, everybody. I am Carla Dennis. I am your host of This Is America 846. And today I have a guest on the show that I am just so excited to chat with. His name is Jason Ziccarelli, and he is the co-founder of Stride Savings. Jason and I have been crossing paths and doing business for a long time. He's actually become one of my really good friends, and he and I have such interesting conversation. We are an interesting pair in dual. So Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carla. Very, very happy to be here. Tell me, Jason, a little bit about yourself. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm one of those folks that really doesn't like talking about himself, so I don't have a whole lot prepared. Um, I'm 43 years old, have been, um, have been developing businesses since, uh, since being about 20. That was the first business I opened. Um, we got three beautiful kids, beautiful wife, and uh, a whole crop of uh, wonderful little animals, one of which I shared with you as we were getting started That's here. That's right. The, the yeah, yeah, a little gauge, the newest addition to the family. So, right. yeah, very much um, just, uh, just a family man like so many other folks uh, that, uh, that just have been fortunate enough to be successful in business and by virtue of that have been exposed to uh, people like you and uh, have developed many, many wonderful relationships over the years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know. I've seen pictures of your family. They're beautiful. The kids, the wife, the dogs. Oh, my goodness. Jason, where did you grow up? Uh, Western New York, uh, south of the Buffalo area, um, the, the, the township, uh, townships of East Aurora and Colden, some nice communities, um, East Aurora being more, um, you know, more developed, more metropolitan, Colden, where I moved to, West Falls, Colden, where I moved to as I aged, uh, being much more rural in nature. <laughs> as you age, you're only 40-something, what are you talking about as you age? <laughs> Knock it off. <laughs> well, moving, moving, uh, uh, yeah, moving from preteen into uh, teen years is, is so, you know, throughout my scholastic career um, is uh, parents were divorced young. And as I transited out of my mother's home and into my father's home, that, that resulted in moving communities uh, to the more rural setting. Wow. So tell me about that upbringing. You said you transitioned out of your mom's home. You transitioned into your dad's home. What was your upbringing like? What was your day to day? Well, you know, the upbringing, as with um, you know, as is the case in, in so many homes, was very dynamic. You know, very different personalities, um, which of course helped manifest itself in the form of the divorce that, that I, I referenced a moment ago. Um, my mother is um, much more liberal in nature. My father is much more conservative in nature. And along with lots of other, uh, you know, personality traits that they contradicted one another. Um, but yeah, it was, like I said, a, a dynamic environment, loving homes, no question about it, loving homes, um, nice homes to grow up in, uh, you know, as, as with anything else. We had, we had peaceful times, we had tumultuous times, we had you know, all the same things that you and everybody else has experienced, right? Yeah, yeah. My, my upbringing was interesting, um, as you know. I lived with my mom and my dad, and it was a it was definitely an interesting dynamic. Being that I was raised in Compton, California, I know a lot of people are shocked when they hear that. Um, 
from where I am today, right? But my upbringing was definitely a lot of sort of what was depicted on television, I guess, if you will. It's just traditional Black family, I guess. I don't know anything else. So that that's definitely, definitely it. Um, I want you to share with your audience kind of like how we met. We didn't, when we first met, you and I didn't meet. It wasn't a rosy situation when we first met. <laughs> no, it wasn't on favorable terms. You know, we, we met through an intermediary um, in a, a business opportunity that, that um, started to go south really, really fast. And by virtue of meeting through the intermediary, we really didn't have direct access to one another. And things were positioned as such that we were on opposite sides from a, a perspective, um, motivation standpoint, we are on opposite sides of, of, of an understanding with regard to, you know, the circumstances. And so, no, we weren't, um, and, and you and I have talked about this at length in the past, we, uh, we weren't overly fond of one another at first. Come on, Jason, just tell it like it is. I like him. Who is this Jason guy? I don't like him already. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's so funny. That that is very true. We were sort of like on the on opposing sides of the of the issue that we were dealing with, and we both had preconceived ideas of what we thought of the other person, only to find out once you and I got together and communicated, it wasn't like that at all. You know what I mean? No, exactly correct. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is, um, you know, you and I are both very strong personalities, which has uh, contributed aggressively, I would argue, mm -hmm. um, for both of us in achieving the success that we have to this point in our careers. Um, and, and along with strong personalities, of course, uh, comes strong, uh, sometimes aggressive communication, um, comes uh, uh, firm positions on, on how we perceive things and events and things of that nature. Um, and yeah, it's kind of interesting how we, and we really did, like I said, we didn't know each other. We met through an intermediary. We were kept arm's length through at least 50% of that experience. And it was really, really easy to form an opinion based on preconceived notions that we found later were not even semi-rooted in reality. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Preconceived notions that's not even cemented in reality. And so, with that note, what do you think about what's kind of going on in America today? All of this unrest that we have, just everything. What do you think is contributing to that? Well, this is a, I mean, as you know, and you and I joked, um, teased. I <laughs> see I'm already being careful. We, we, we recognize that this is a, it, it's, I used the word tumultuous before, this is a, a, a hot topic, tumultuous topic, no question about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the unique position of having to be really, really careful about what I say, which is a side effect, I think, of what's going on in America today, where there's so little opportunity for effective dialogue such that you know we're seeing a lot of a lot of the societal unrest that we're seeing right now wherein our peoples are being pinned against one another for what i believe is is a political and social agenda and i, I really feel like it's a travesty yeah yeah and i think to your point um 
What's politically correct? What can you say? How do you say it? When can you say it? I mean, by all accounts, if people had told me like 10 years ago when we first met that you and I would be like the great friends that we are now, I would never have thought that, right? But I think through dialogue and us getting to know each other, us realizing that, you know, well, we both want the same things in the situation that we were dealing with at the time. We both wanted the same things. And so once we got past that and you and I got to know each other, you and I have great dialogue. I mean, I am the blackest friend you know <laughs> from, from Compton, right? Yep. And we can yep. talk about anything. Well, and you've you know, and you've teased and and lightheartedly so that I'm I'm you know the archetype for the typical white guy, right? Now, here yeah. I am with my shaved head, not because I want a shaved head, mind you. I'm going bald, and the longer I grow it, the more obvious the bald spots are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, shaved head, cowboy boots, drive a truck. You know, I'm I'm. Like I said, I'm the archetype for the stereotypical white guy. Um, yeah. But, you know, we've always, I, I really believe that the effectiveness of our relationship comes from a the way we interact with people, right? And the way we interact with people is that we deal with people on an individual basis. Um, we deal with people from a position of respect. In other words, right. you got my respect until you give me a reason not to have respect for you. And we've always had um thoughtful and open dialogue in an intelligent dialogue and you know who doesn't appreciate an intelligent dialogue that's not one-sided and not laden with an effort or an agenda to sway you to my way of looking at things and instead i'm i'm open to what you have to say and i'm interested in what you have to say in your perspective you've always been very very open with my perspective in hearing what i have to say and, and trying to understand my perspective on things and i think that to be quite frank that, that that's the that's the epitome of communication. That's what we should all strive for. And, and once we achieve that, we'll we'll move a, a million miles further down the road to addressing any form of injustice, um, be it institutional or otherwise, regardless of what somebody thinks. We'll move a million miles further down the road through through intelligent, respectful dialogue than we will through social unrest. That that's that's real true. It's just. Being, being able to talk to each other intelligently, um, dropping our fears. I, I think a lot of what we deal with is just really, really fear-based, right? We don't know what we don't know, and, it, and we are fearful of the unknown. And, and I can say that literally because I remember when I moved to where I live now, I moved out of predominantly all, it wasn't predominantly all, but it was all black neighborhood. Um, and from Compton to an area where I live today, pretty much an affluent neighborhood, professional jobs, business owners. And when my parents who came up through the depression, um, they were like in flip out mode. Like, what are you doing? And why are you going out there to live near those white people? And what is wrong with you, Carla? And they were just not having it. And um, we moved out here. And then four or five years later, we actually bought a house and moved my parents out here. And you talking about an experience, Jason, um, <laughs> where we grew up, 
people didn't just like knock on your door. Like there were rules to how you went on somebody's front porch. But when we yep. first moved here, um, and where my parents lived, the next door neighbor who was Caucasian came over, rang my mom's doorbell, and she had a pie in her hand to welcome my mom to the neighborhood. My mom flipped out. She calls me on the phone. These white people on my porch, they're trying to poison me. Oh my God, they don't want me in the neighborhood. So it was fear, <laughs> you know? It was just the craziest thing. And I just think, I don't know. What are you what are you telling your kids about this situation, this whole thing that they're seeing? What do you what do you share with your family about it? Well, I'm trying to, to the best of my ability, I'm trying to impart life experiences because I, I on my kids, and I think that impart um, that's that's kind of something I came to a little bit later in life, and, and you know some of what you and I have talked about is, and, and you asked earlier about um, you know where I grew up. As I mentioned, there were certainly liberal factions within my family that um, were very open-minded, um, but then there was also very old-school, uh, conservative-minded individuals that they carried with them predispositions and, and um, biases and, and absolutely degrees of racism, uh, you know, overt angry racism, as well as um, sense of superiority, which I think is a is also, you know, racism can manifest itself in that fashion as well. The, we joked about the, um, the, you know, the high school I went to, we had, we were so rural, we actually had kids show up to school on occasion when, in the wintertime and snowmobiles in the summertime on four-wheelers and even tractors. Um, oh, wow. In fact, I, I had a friend uh, in high school a year ahead of me that he had, and we all at the time thought it was the coolest thing in the world, the, um, uh, a, a replica of the General Lee from the TV series, The Dukes of Hazard, which of course, and I'm trying to remember now if it's the, the hood or the roof, actually had, it's emblazoned with the Confederate flag, right? And, and at the time we all thought it was, you know, it, that thing pulled into the parking lot of the high school and everybody lost their minds, right? Um, there was in the class ahead of me, my class and class behind me, I can't remember anything else. There was not a single person of color in the entire school. And so, mm -hmm you just, you weren't worldly, right? You just weren't exposed to, to other things. And I think that that's a big part of it. And so what I'm trying to impart upon my children is that as I've, as I've you know, moved out of a small rural community like that and, and, and certain closed-minded um, mindsets and biases and predispositions, which of course permeate a person at a young age, and they did myself, you and I have very openly discussed the fact that I absolutely um, had, racially oriented beliefs and predispositions when I was younger, but it was moving on to college and being exposed to a lot of other people and, and, and aspects of our culture and aspects of other cultures, you know, foreigners and, and, and folks from much more metro settings and in city settings and inner city settings um, that then exposed me to a great deal more. And then as I aged and, and became successful in business, I traveled more, right? Went to other communities, other states, um, and then outside of the country, is, as you know, um, one of my favorite places on earth is, uh, is South Africa. Um, it, you know, and, and we've talked about that at great length. And I, I'm an outdoorsman, I'm a hunter, and that, of course, is what originally took me over there. But as you and I have discussed, um, the societal circumstances are just as intriguing to me over there as, as the you know, variety of wildlife. And, you know, what you see 
either is is how best to say it what you see there is is very telling for what could be might be possibly I, there's a lot to take from that with regard to developing and understanding where we are here in America today, where we could go, what we should aim for, what we should be careful for, careful of. Um, there's just a lot to be taken from that. So going back now, you know, I'm very long winded. So I'm coming back <laughs> up full circle. Your actual question. I'm trying to impart upon my children what was not necessarily imparted upon me as a child. And that is just, just be open-minded. Um, there's good and there's bad everywhere. There's good and there's bad in everybody, in every group, in every race, in every religion, in every gender, in every predisposition. There's good and bad. And everybody needs to be afforded the opportunity to show you which they are and then to be treated accordingly. And right. so that's that's the that's what I'm attempting to impart upon my children. Yeah. So your upbringing, I mean, that was so interesting about that. Like your upbringing and the biases in your home were no different than the biases in my home. So my upbringing with my mom and my dad was stay away from the white, blue-eyed she-devils. That's what we were told. And so I was raised with all Black friends, all Black neighborhood. Everybody was Black. I was not exposed really to one white person that I really had an open dialogue with until I went to college. And I ended up meeting um, a good friend in college. Her name was Barbara. And she and I were in a county program together. And she and I would discuss this issue back then. I mean, I haven't been in college and that was like in the 80s. And she would even say that. She was like, I didn't grow up with any black friends or anything like that. And we, we used to call each other salt and pepper. That's just how interesting it was. And so I think that we had the same mindset growing up from a different perspective because my parents told me that. Um, I'm sure your parents told you certain things. And when we went to school, I mean, we were doing our black power and all of that type of stuff. Probably no different from you guys doing the Confederate flag and whatever you did to represent what you thought or what you were taught that represented where you came from. So why is that? That to me is no different than the way I was brought up. Does the meaning of those items, the Confederate flag and all of that stuff symbolize something that I think to a lot of people it's, it's hurtful to them? I don't even think like that. I never even, that ain't never even crossed my mind to be quite honest with you. I never once said, oh, that's a Confederate flag and I feel some sort of way behind it. But again, that's my feeling, right? But yeah. what I will tell you is that I do take issue with people disrespecting the American flag, disrespecting the national anthem. I do take issue with that, probably because my father was a military person. And... Um, he fought he fought in the military and he fought for this country and he was very prideful of that very prideful of that and i would say if he were here and, and saw people 
disrespecting those aspects, I, he would like it. So no, I, I don't know. That's um, you know, Carla, that's a really tough topic, and and I really think it comes down to a matter of perspective. I think that you know, if you anchor or root the American flag in the military, um, in, in the freedom that we've stood for as a nation uh, again and again and again, and you isolate, um, you know, you, you, you isolate the pledge, you, you isolate the Star Spangled Banner, you isolate the flag into those topics, then yeah, it's really, really easy to, you know, be offended by protest, to be offended, especially by the burning of the flag, um, you know, kneeling during the anthem, uh, things of that nature. At the same time, I think that trying to think of how best to express this. I think that my perspectives, while they're um, they're broad in nature, and I, I strive to be able to empathize with people. There's a lot of life experiences I don't have, and there's a lot of life experiences I don't have. There's a lot of your life experiences that I don't have, just as though there's just, there's my life experiences that you don't have. And I don't know that I'm necessarily in a, in a position to fully, and I'm not suggesting you are, I don't know that I'm in a position to fully condemn the behavior, the act, because those folks in the act could absolutely be coming at it from a perspective that I've not had and a very, very different perspective than rooting the flag in the, in the anthem in, um, in those topics that we just touched on. And, and at that point from that, unique perspective and from that from that isolated angle it might be a less volatile act i, I mean i'll flat out tell you my knee-jerk response is to have a problem yeah. I, I i just it is um and and hopefully you know everybody understands that as i'm saying it's my knee-jerk response from my life perspectives and how i look at the flag and how i look at the anthem and isolating the occurrences to my perspective, the way I look at things, yes, it results in the knee-jerk response of frustration and in a feeling of, of offense. While at the same time, I try to, you know, pull myself back and say that that, that may not be what they mean. You know, while I'm perceiving it that way, that may not be what the individual means in the moment. Um, it's much like I'm big on analogies and, and I listen to comedy a lot. You and I have talked about that when I'm driving, I, I, I got my XM and I listen to comedy shows and, and something that's become very pervasive in the last few years is the, um, you know, kind of the, the, the gotcha movement, right? I'm uh, Kevin Hart fell victim to it. Um, when, you know, he made certain humor. I don't know. I, I'm trying to remember. Now. I'm going to get it wrong. Five, 10 years ago, and he was supposed to speak or host the Grammys or whatever it is he was hosting this year. And somebody dug up this comment that was much more acceptable in a, in, a, in a comic or a comedian environment 10 years ago than it is today. And, and he ended up losing his spot because of that. And you see this again and again and again within the, uh, within the community of comics. And because I pay so much attention to it, I hear it. And that's why I bring it up, is that you'll have a lot of comedians right now and for the last couple of years, they keep getting villainized because of a joke they told, but they're being villainized because somebody else repositioned the joke and they're speaking to it from their perspective as opposed to how the comment, comic 
meant it at the moment. Right, right. And Monica is very then frustrated at the, you know, the social outrage from a perspective that was never theirs. And so it's taking that in mind that I try to step back when I see somebody kneeling during the anthem and my knee-jerk response is to get angry and get frustrated and to find it offensive. And I try to step back using that mindset and that example to say, well, maybe they don't have a problem with the military. Maybe they don't have a problem with this, that, or the other. And instead, this is for whatever reason, how they've chosen to display their frustration over X. And I've never experienced X. So maybe I should calm down for a moment. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think the lesson in that is that it's not our perception, it's their perception or their reality. Like, what is their reality? Because to your point, we may not have set in their shoes, right? I can only speak to and think through based off the life experiences that I've had, i.e. my father being a military person, we held that in high regard. We were told you respect that flag at all costs, but then you have somebody over here that maybe doesn't even have the awareness that maybe that flag does represent all of that. And to them, maybe they're looking at it from a perspective that that flag is representing everybody being treated equal. And since they're not being treated equal in that person's mind, then the flag is a disrespect to them. That, that's pretty, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that's probably their, their belief, you know? It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Jason, you and I could talk forever, and we do a lot of times, <laughs> right? You and I could talk forever. I want to give you the last word. If you could use this platform to give our listeners any words of advice or to tell them anything from your perspective, what would you want them to know from your perspective in regards to how maybe we should try to bridge this gap or handle this situation from your perspective? Well, um, that's an interesting question, and I'll dovetail it with the question you asked me yesterday and, and the answer I gave, and, and I'll try to spin my comprehensive response off of that. The, the, the question you asked me yesterday that I'm commenting on is, you know, would I, would I march? And my answer was no, um, and for a lot of different reasons, one of which is a lesson I took from my father, um, both my grandfathers. And, and many other family members, and it's something that, that I do absolutely agree with. And, and there's different iterations of it, um, but change starts at home, right? And so long before I march somewhere, long before I expose myself to what may happen in an environment that may stay completely peaceful, may turn violent, uh, and we don't know, right? There's plenty of peaceful protests and there's been plenty of violent protests. And before I stick myself in that environment, um, I damn well better make sure that I'm not in a glass house. And excuse my language, I apologize. But I think that there's, there's far too many people in America, there's far too many people all over the world that are, are throwing a lot of stones living in, in one heck of a glass house. And I think that if you want societal change, not, again, not suggesting for a moment that, that, that all of the protests have turned violent. I said a moment ago, they flat out, they haven't. There's been some really, really solid protests that, um, that have shown people how to carry oneself 
in, in a tumultuous period and how you can come together uh, with a communal voice and do so without the environment devolving to a violent one. Um, and I think that, that that has very positive undertones. But even then, before you go to the streets, you should really make sure that your house is in order. And I, I think that anything that's not right in society, the best way to enact a movement is you start at home, right? And, and you make a difference in your own house and you establish a community within your home that has the social contract in mind, um, that has fairness in mind, that has civility in mind. And then you, you, know, you move out from there. It, it, it's, it's your home. It's your, your, so it's your nuclear family, it's your extended family, it's your community, it's your city, it's your state, it's your nation. Um, you, you can't leapfrog and go straight to the nation and think that you're going to accomplish anything of substance. And, and when you're not accomplishing what you want to accomplish fast enough, and, and, and that turns into a, uh, an ignition point that results in aggression, I mean, aggression, violence is never, homeborn violence has never accomplished anything but create more violence and more, more turmoil and, and further separate a population. And further separation is absolutely the last thing we need at this point. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It starts at home. It starts with home training. It starts with home education. Because that's really, I mean, if you pull from anything, you pull from the people around you. Your family is such a, has such a huge influence. My kids have an influence on me. I have an influence on them. And it needs to start there because they are our tentacles that are going to go out into the world and affect change with the way that we are bringing them up. So to your point, I have to agree. Jason, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I mean, I, I love talking to you. I'm telling you. I just absolutely love my conversations with you. You're one of the coolest white guys with bald hair that I know. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Carla. It's been a, a pleasure and an honor. And, um, you know, we, we chat many times, a couple days, a couple days a week to a couple days a month. And, and I look forward to our, you know, our next conversation. Absolutely. You take great care. You too. Thank you. <laughs>